We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Reality television has its detractors. It has been blamed for everything from body dysmorphia to the downfall of Western civilization, And yet there is no dispute that it has shaped the world we live in. Look no further than Donald Trump, the former reality TV star who is now president of the United States. He's not my guest today, but I'm delighted instead to welcome Jamie Lang, who knows better than most the reach of reality TV. Since 2011, He has appeared in every series of E4's hit TV show, Made in Chelsea. As one of the longest-serving cast members, devoted Made in Chelsea fans, of which I am one, have followed Jamie as he parties through his 20s, falls in and more frequently out of love, and finds his perfect shade of peroxide hair dye. On the show, he is hilarious and good fun. Off-screen, he has a serious side, setting up a highly successful sweet company, Candy Kittens, which seems apt for the man whose great-grandfather invented the digestive biscuit. Lang also hosts his own podcast, Private Parts, with Made in Chelsea alumnus Francis Boole. Lang is, by his own admission, very posh. But unlike some of his castmates, he possesses a good-natured warmth that makes him charming to watch. One of his school teachers once said that getting cross with Jamie is like drowning puppies. His mother, Penny, puts it this way. Jamie was trouble from day one. He's disorganised and unreliable, but he's such great fun. The lights go on when he walks in. Jamie Lang, the lights have gone on as he walked into my flat. Do the lights go on? I just don't. I think they're already on. I don't know. Can I just tell you, I am so excited to be on this podcast. I cannot tell you. Your podcast is one of those ones that you listen to and just makes you feel great and happy and wonderful. And I think that needs to happen more in life. 
God, that yeah. is such a lovely thing to say. I'm so excited to have you on. And I'm also really thrilled that you listen to the podcast and you totally engage with the idea of it. Mm. And when you emailed me your failures, they're just so moving that you, you really went there with them, which I love. Yeah, well, I think that's the thing about having done reality TV, I suppose. But also, in life, I've always been just very open in life because reality TV is about giving over your life and just being the person who you are and not trying to hide or play a character or things like that. And so I've always been that person to kind of never hold back and always be totally open. So when you do a podcast like this, the best way to do a podcast like this is to be really open with things. And as much as, you know, I've had a very privileged life in so many different ways, I've had a life of of failures and of upsets and of all these different things. But I sort of sometimes cast a sort of shadow over it to protect myself and try and be this sort of bright light that comes into the room, as you said. Yeah, because I think I saw in an interview that given that when you started doing Made in Chelsea, you had panic attacks for a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't so much that. What it was, was well, I did have panic attacks. I basically, I started doing this TV show, Made in Chelsea, and it was started at the very beginning where I was at Leeds University. And I also was one of these guys who didn't really know what I wanted to do in my life. My stepfather said to me, Jamie has so much energy. If you harness it, he can do great things. But I was never really knew my place. And I find that's the problem with the education system, that if you aren't good at history or geography or maths and those things, you kind of are seen as a failure. And I was very good at sports and all those kind of things, but I wasn't very academic because I wasn't interested in it. So I was always seen as this kind of failure guy. So then I went and joined, uh, went to Leeds University and I was offered this TV show. I remember I went on holiday with one of my best friend's mums, a girl called Sophie Tanner-Lang, who actually is head of Endemol Shine. And I was on holiday with her, and, I, and she said, Jamie, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I was about 20 years old at the time, and I said, I'm going to be a TV presenter. And she said, you're not. And I said, why? And she said, well, you're too posh. You can't be a TV presenter. There's no way that's going to happen. And I went, okay, well, I've been offered a TV show with my friends about being posh. And she said, don't do it. It'll be the worst idea in the entire world. Reality TV is this, it's that, it's this, it's that. And I said, well, I'm going to go and do it then, because you told me I'm not going to go and do it. And I went on to this TV show and started Made in Chelsea and all those kind of things. And it was great fun. However, what happens with doing a TV show, I suppose, is that you're suddenly hit with some sort of fame, whatever, however minuscule, however Z-list people want to call it. It's just, you know, you get some sort of profile. You also are 20 years old and you are going partying and all these different things. And with that combined and that pressure, not really knowing yourself and not really knowing what you want to do and always being seen as a failure, I had this anxiety built up in my body. And after filming for the first six months, I suddenly started having these panic attacks. And the problem with the panic attacks was I'm such an open person and so kind of outgoing and all these kind of things. And suddenly from going from this incredibly outgoing, open person, I then felt that I was trapped in my own body and I didn't want to leave the house and I didn't want to see people and I had social anxiety because I thought I would have a panic attack whenever I went and saw someone so it was a really horrible moment and it lasted for about a year but I just didn't tell anyone because if I told anyone it became a reality and so it was really quite horrible but you learn so much from those kind of things. I've got so many questions that spiral outwards from that. Sorry, by the way, I talk so much. It's amazing. <laughs> You're I, the ideal guest. If I keep talking, <laughs> I apologise. Because so many people come onto this podcast and f- say that they felt they failed at their 20s. Mm. And I think that's because, as you rightly identify... You're trying to find your way in a world that is confusing because you've left full-time education and you're still working out your own identity. But to play out your 20s on screen must have just been a whole heap of 
anxiety. Well, it, it's a it's a weird one, and you know, and people talk about how reality shows, and you know, people are talking about these suicides and things like that are going on mm. reality TV, and, and in fact, actually, suicide is the biggest killer for males under forty five, and that's happening in all industries. It doesn't matter if you're a baker, a butcher, a reality star, it's happening all over the place. It's just because you have some sort of profile that it's sort of shown across. But it's weird because your 20s, I think, is about finding your identity and finding out who you are, as you said. And for me, I had no clue who I was, really. I thought I did. thought I knew everything about me, but I knew nothing. You also then are playing a part on a television show, and I was being myself, but then you have the ups and the downs and these kind of things. And also, there's no stability in it as well. You know, you could suddenly, the show could stop. They could do all these things. And then what do you do with your life? And so with all those pressures added up, it was really quite, I sound like I, I working down a mine. I mean, I, I got to hang out with my mates and got paid to do it. It was pretty sweet. But at the same time, it was just a combination of things. But all of my anxieties and hept things happened from when I was a kid. And so I had to understand myself. And I was trying to blame it on going out too much or doing this or doing that, all those things. But in fact, I had to really discover actually who I was. And I think the thing is, you know, Socrates said, right, there are two levels of happiness, lower level and higher level. The lower level is wealth, fame, power, those kind of things. And that's what I thought I wanted. I thought I wanted to be rich. When I was a kid, I was like, oh, no, I'm going to go and be driving a Ferrari when I'm 25 and this kind of thing. And I thought that's what success was. But in fact, the higher level of Happiness is what Socrates says is the one you want to go for, which is empathy, friendship, love, kindness, all those kind of things, doing good. And I had to learn throughout my 20s that in fact, the thing that's going to make me happy isn't being wealthy and being famous and all those kind of things. And, and all those things that you think are going to make you happy and you climb to the top of the mountain, you get there and you realize they actually not make you happy. What actually makes you happy is having strong relationships with your friends, being empathetic and having self-awareness and doing good and, and having a purpose. And the most important thing I had to learn was I had to find my purpose and I couldn't find it throughout my life. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that's why I started to have anxiety and things like that. Do you think you found your purpose now? I think I have. Yeah, I think so. But I've been really quite lucky because I was able to discover what I wanted to do because I came from a family who gave me an allowance and I went to a boarding school that taught you to stand up in front of a crowd and be able to give us, you know, talk. I didn't have to go and work in the local Asda to pay my rent or look after my family or do those kind of things. I could sit on my butt and kind of go, okay, I'm 21. What do I really want to do? I'll do this reality show. I'll do this. I'll do that and figure out what I wanted to do. And I figured now that my purpose in life is to, I just love entertaining and whatever form that is, I don't mind. But as long as I can continue to do that, I will be immensely happy. And, you know, the key is, you know, when we're younger, we're asked these things. If you had one wish, what would your wish be? And people go, oh, I, I want to, you know, be the richest person in the world or this or those kind of things. Oh, I want to have 40 girlfriends or whatever it is. But now, actually, everyone's wish, what you find out, is just to be happy. And that's what I had to figure out. Although you've had close to 40 girlfriends, but we'll get on to that. <laughs> But can I just ask, before we get on to your failures, because they tally so much with what we've just been talking about, explain to the uninitiated among us how structured reality works. So on Made in Chelsea, you, Jamie Lang, as I see you now, are living your life. But then what we see on the programme 
How is that different from your actual life? <laughs> well, it's a weird one. Okay, so this TV show started because reality TV was beginning and we had things like The Hills and all those kind of stuff. And TV shows are expensive to make, but reality shows are actually quite cheap. So it was kind of this point where we're like, right, let's make cheap shows where we don't really have to pay talent and all that kind of stuff. And what it is, is a TV show which is definitely based on reality, 100%. What happens on the show is real. However, you can't go into a scene and talk about the weather because that's boring and people don't want to hear about the weather. They want to hear about your love life and they want to hear about your struggles and all those kind of things. And so everything is real. However, they can't play everything in your life. So they can't talk about the fact that, well, they could do, but they do, there's not enough time in, in a 60-minute episode to cover everything that's going on. So they cover your love life and things that apparently people are interested in seeing. But it's, how do I explain it in a certain way? You'll get an email or a text saying, right, you are filming at the Bluebird and it's at two o'clock in the afternoon and you have to wear something summery because summer's coming around the place and you'll turn up at two o'clock at the Bluebird in your summer clothes and they'll say, right, you have a scene today with Spence Matthews. And they'll say, Spencer Matthews has broken up with his girlfriend. He is very upset about it. You quite like his girlfriend because you've told us that you quite like his girlfriend. So you're going to do a scene about that. And you go, okay, fine. And that's how you go into it. And it's very true. And you, it's your own emotions. You're not told to do anything, but you're sort of positioned in a place where they go, this is what you're feeling. So tell them that's what you're feeling. But the most amazing thing about reality TV, which I didn't realize until a few years ago, is that it's all complete improv. And so I've become a master of improv. You can be put into rooms or do podcasts with people. You can just talk, which is quite a useful skill to learn. And people don't realise that that's what they're learning as a reality star. Fascinating. And also, I guess it encourages you to put words to your emotions, which is another thing that I think people struggle with in their 20s. Yeah, completely. I think, you know, a lot of people struggle with speaking about their emotions stereotypically it's a lot of guys because guys have this macho attitude and oh I can't feel that way and and I certainly felt like that at the beginning because I honestly remember when I was having these panic attacks I remember standing in the shower and I was feeling so panicky and I didn't know what was wrong because no one had anxiety then yeah. you know that was the scary thing that no, anxiety wasn't a thing like it is nowadays kids at the age of eight are getting anxiety in schools because of social pressures and social media and all these different things but when I was 20 there was no social media really there was Twitter that was it but I remember standing in the shower and feeling this thing that I couldn't understand what it was and I remember speaking to myself going what is wrong with you Jamie and as soon as I said that it became a reality I, it became real and that made me even more scared I said well I can't say that because people think I'm weird people think I'm strange I'm different to everyone else in here so I, I can't tell them that I'm odd and it's the whole point that in life we are so wanting to fit in that if we don't fit in we're scared however why fit in when we're born to stand out and so that's what I had to kind of learn god I went on another tangent there. why <laughs> so, fit in when we're born to stand out I want that on a t-shirt I think I it probably is I think it probably is <laughs> Let's go on to your first failure, mm -hmm. which is a really interesting one, because in many respects, it is not your failure. And I'm interested as to why you chose it. And you said to me that it was when you were eight years old and your parents got divorced, you went to boarding school and your nanny of eight years left and you moved to London with your mum and it all happened in the same period of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did it feel like your failure? Well, it, it's interesting, right? Because I, it's definitely a, a failing for me now. So I grew up in a, the countryside in Gloucestershire until I was about seven, eight years old in an amazing house. I had a swimming pool, had all these different things. We had a, I had my two older sisters who were half sisters. I had my older brother, Alexander, who is 
a rock in my life. I had my little sister Emily, who's incredible. And we had my mum and dad. And we had a nanny. And the nanny looked after me. She's called Julie, and she was incredible. And she looked after me. She was this northern lady. I was this kid who... I mean, imagine a bouncy ball and throw it around a room. That's, I put a face on it. That was basically me. I just was crazy. I used to throw fits. I used to throw tantrums. I used to steal money. I was like a magpie because I thought it was shiny. I was like, what? So I was this nightmare kid with so much energy. But I had all this space in the world to run around and be free and all these kind of things. We had a very sort of happy, and I had a really happy life. At eight years old, I was sent to boarding school. Well, actually, first in the summer, my parents got divorced. And I actually never really spoken about this. So what happened was is that I remember it so well because my mum, who loved my dad very much, and my dad also very much loved my mum, but it just didn't work for certain reasons. I remember I was sitting in a car and we were going water skiing, and I was about eight years old. And my mum was in my dad's office, and she took ages to come out. And she walked out, and she was upset. I never, ever see my mum upset. I've never seen my mum cry, ever. Never seen her cry. And she walked out and she was upset. And I remember seeing her and, and, I, and I remember her walking towards me, my dad following her. And she came to the car and she opened up the door and I said, where have you been? She said, oh, and I said, what's the matter? What's the matter? And dad was behind her. And he said, I said, it hit me straight away. I said, you're getting a divorce. When you were eight? When I was eight years old, I said, you're, you're getting a divorce. And my dad went, no, no, we're not. And my mum said, tell him the truth. What's happening? Tell him the truth. And he said, well, I think we are. And she slammed the door and said, go and fuck up someone else's life. And I never heard my mum swear either. And I remember that moment so well. So that happened. And I didn't realise what family, how important family is and that structure that family needs to have. And then I was sent to boarding school after the summer as well that that happened. And I didn't understand the concept of boarding school. I arrived there and suddenly my mum wasn't there to pick me up. And I had to stay the night there. And I was like, well, what is this prison? I'm getting given a number. And I have to stay at eight years old. I mean, that's so baby. And my nanny left, who was this girl called Julie, who was so tough, but really kind of held sort of things together. But the reason why I chose it as my failure is because what happened to me then was then, with all those things that happened, I then got the problem with abandonment, that I was worried that I was always going to be abandoned. And when you get the fear of abandonment, you have this always this desire to find a home and and anyone who leaves you worry so much and so what you do is you become a real sort of people person towards people so I was always wanting to be friends with so many different people and always trying to keep them there and I then couldn't be honest so much with people because I would worry I'd let them down and if I let them down they wouldn't like me if they didn't like me they would then go and then I would be abandoned and so I had this whole issue with this whole abandonment thing because of the divorce and because of this movement and because of sending me to boarding school and all these different things. And because of that, I have a real big issue sometimes where if a wedding is coming up and I know I can't go, I will say, oh yeah, I'll I'll be there because I don't want to let them down. But in fact, then I have to find a a way to let them down further down the line. And that's the failing that I have. And my mum always says to me, come on, you just got to be honest in this situation. No one cares. I go, yeah, but I can't. I'm nodding my head so vociferously because I know exactly <laughs> you where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. And I was also, and still am a little bit, but I was a massive people pleaser. Yeah. For similar reasons. My parents aren't divorced, but I was. I also went to boarding school and various things went on. And I outsourced my sense of self to other people and mainly to romantic relationships. So I was in a series of long-term monogamous relationships through Mm. my 20s. And I was just constantly trying to be the perfect girlfriend and like the perfect... And exactly the same thing. I would get myself into these situations I didn't want to be in. Mm -hmm. And 
it was really panicking. Yeah, it's really interesting as well because you've broken free of that, I suppose, in a sense. But I struggle with it still sometimes because I'm so determined for people to like me and I really love people. I think people are amazing. I struggle with the fact that some people may not like me and some people may find me irritating and some people may find me with too much energy and all those kind of things. But I don't like that. And I'm like, oh God, I can't handle that sometimes. I think also, you know, going to boarding school like you did is a really tricky thing because you're thrown into an environment where you have to make friends with strangers. Totally. It's bizarre. It's sink or swim, really. It's sink or swim, and you have to make friends, and you do all these things, but then also everything is done for you. Everything's done for you. So your laundry's done for you. You're fed at mealtimes. You are given sports to do, all those kind of things. And I had that from 8 to 18, surrounded by everyone the entire time. So I had this home always the entire time. And then from 18 to... 21 or whatever it was or 22 I was at Leeds University and I still had around my friends the entire time and then from 22 when you come into London you're suddenly not around everyone the entire time and you suddenly go well hang on a second I'm now alone how do I figure out myself and that's when all these anxieties and all these issues came onto the surface because suddenly you're going hang on a second I don't have a home have I suddenly been abandoned I'm completely worried and all these different things and, and it becomes a big issue. God, that's so interesting. Can I take you back to when you were eight and mm. you were sent to this boarding school? Yeah. Again, talking about whether you felt it was your failure, did you feel you'd done something wrong? Did you feel you were being punished? No, I definitely didn't feel like I had done something wrong, but I didn't understand... Because I, as a kid, I was just running around doing my own thing. I never focused on actual life and things like that and understanding. So my mum would have told me what it was, but I just wouldn't listen. Mm. So I didn't know. And then suddenly I arrive at this place. I remember saying, oh, where, where's my mum? And they said, well, mum's gone home. Oh. <laughs> yeah, God. Sorry, that's really obsessing me. <laughs> yeah, it's, really, it's, really, it's so upsetting. Yeah, it really is. Oh. Yeah, it's, and so I went, okay. <laughs> I was like, really? She's gone? And I am, my mum is my world. She's my rock. Um, most incredible woman in the entire world and has been through a lot of pain and shit. So she had gone. So I was like, okay, fine. And then I remember I went into this dormitory and I was sitting there says, lying next to this guy called Pelham. Sounds awful. God, it sounds <laughs> terrible. It was lovely at the same time. But in the first night, he suddenly woke up in the middle of the night and started screaming mummy. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, so it was... I didn't understand the concept of boarding school because I'd never questioned it. It was just a pathway that my dad had done, his grandfather had done, and things like that. So it was never questioned about whether this was right for him or not. And my saving grace I had at school that I was really good at sports. So I was captain of every sport. I was then a sports scholar at a place called Radley College. But I never liked school. I felt trapped. Yeah, I felt trapped. I felt that it didn't offer what I wanted to do. I felt that, like I said at the beginning, that if you didn't do well in your exams, then you were seen as a failure. And I think that's completely wrong. So I always thought that I had to prove myself in a certain way, validate myself in a certain way. And I think that was down to this divorce and going to boarding school and moving to London is because I was suddenly abandoned by my family, what I thought it was, abandoned by that, was left alone. And of course, they didn't mean to do that, but that's what subconsciously I felt. I was a move from this house in the country doing that, and my nanny left, and all these things happened at this age. So suddenly I thought, well, I'm a complete... And I wasn't doing well in school until I was 18, apart from sport. And so I was then seen as this failure. And I was like, well, what do I do in life? And so it was a kind of complicated 
upbringing. And I'm so glad you're talking about it because I think it's really important to remember that although on the surface and on paper, and you acknowledge this and are so aware of it and self-aware, that on paper you had a charmed existence Mm. and you were privileged and you were sent to boarding school and had a great big house and all of this sort of stuff. And actually what lies within that is what connects all of us because within that you were also experiencing anxiety and feelings of failure and not belonging. And I think that it's a beautiful thing to connect on that level, that no matter what your background, you can connect through that kind of vulnerability. God, every single person on this planet can connect in a certain way. And that's why people are so... We spend our lives, it's so annoying, looking down at phones and not communicating with different people. But people are badass. People are so sweet. You know, I did two TV shows, one called Famous, Rich and Hungry, which is a great (laughs) title. (laughs) Yeah, which was a BBC One show where I went and lived with two families on benefits. And they were actually living off one pound... 20 for food per day and I want to live with them but the most amazing thing is that we're all the same I connect with these people these families on such a great level because we are all the same and then I did another one recently which was a police show called Famous and Fighting Crime I would meet all these people who were being arrested and all these different things and yes there are some bad people out there but the majority of people have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Their upbringing has been disastrous. They don't understand what's going on in their head. They are filled with anxiety and issues and all that. And, and their release is either drinking or drugs or fighting because it's the only way they can express themselves. And they are ridiculed and they are told that they are horrible failures and all these different people. But in fact, it's just life was so hard for them that they can't understand their own thoughts and things like that. And I connected with these people amazingly well. And everyone can connect with everyone. It's just about actually speaking to them. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Let's move on to your second failure because you talked there about how sport was your salvation in many Mm -hmm. ways at school and that it fed into the way that you saw yourself and you were a brilliant rugby player. Tell us what happened next. Well, I think what happens in life, right, is that we have a blueprint. Everyone thinks that we have a blueprint. So when we're younger, we're going, right, I'm going to be an astronaut or I'm going to be a stuntman or I'm going to be married at 24 and have a house here and I'm going to have three kids called Emily, Tom and Charlie. And you have this blueprint in life, right? And my blueprint was I was going to be a rugby player. That's what I wanted to do. And I was very good at sport, very good at rugby. And I was captain of all the teams and I was the best player and all these different things. So growing up, that was my USP. That was my unique selling point. That was what I identified myself with, going back to that identity thing. If you're an artist, you want to be an artist. If you play the guitar, you want to be a rock star growing up. I wanted to play rugby, and I was in my last year of school. 
And it, this was my year to be the captain and be the one to be the best in school. And it was always about validation. It was always about, I have to be known for doing something. I have to be known for being the best at something because otherwise I'm a failure. And on tour in Italy, I caught the ball and I ran across the pitch and I went past a guy and my knee just popped. And I ruptured and toured and everything, my ACL. And I remember lying on the ground and holding me knee and just going, that's my season, my season, my season. And the physio person came and took me off the pitch and she said, I promise you, your knee's fine. I promise you, your knee's fine. I said, do you swear? Do you swear? And she said, I promise you, your knee is going to be okay. And in my head, I was like, I just don't know if it is. This is terrible. And I want, that's all I want to do. And I went and had the MRI scan back in London. I remember the things, the, this the MRI scan going on the wall with the doctor and the doctor turned to me and said, yeah, I'm afraid it's the ACL. You're not going to be playing rugby. And for me, I mean, it sounds so little and so minor and things, but for me at the time, it was like the whole world had collapsed because I then lost my identity. I lost who I was and I couldn't be the person, you know, I had all these visions of going on to be this rugby player and all these different things. It was horrendous. And I went back to school and then I wasn't the sportsman anymore. So I was then sidelined because I wasn't academic either. So again, I lost my sense of self. But with all failures, right, there's always something great that comes out of them. What do we learn from our failures? And there are so many things that I, you know, and I can talk about this at the end with, you know, regards to divorce and things like that. But with the rugby thing, the biggest thing was it was a blessing in disguise. Mm. Because what I would have tried to do is I would have tried to become a rugby player. I, would always, I was always too small. I was always slightly getting injured. I would have not quite made it, but I would have tried to keep going for it because that was my identity and my purpose and I had to do it. And I would have never quite done it. And so me, Rachel Rini, meant, meant that I could never do it. However, it meant that I could then go and do other things that potentially I would never have done. Do you cry? You said that you'd never seen your mother cry. Yeah, I do cry. I cry, I cry at movies, I can cry at movies and things like that. Do I cry over things? I cry when something is really deep and... I know that it actually, either someone's hurt, that's something's really deep, or it's, if I talk about things that I know have hurt me, mm. then I can cry. But I won't cry at things like breakups or people potentially dying or things like that. With things that people go, well, why don't you cry? And I go, I don't know. I don't know why I don't cry at those things. Did you cry with the ACL? Yeah, I did. I did cry. And I remember the doctor saying, yeah, you can't do it. And I remember just breaking down and my mum taking me outside and going oh my god what do we do with this child and I then couldn't use that doctor because he had given me the bad news oh. yeah it was terrible and so then I had to go and find a different doctor because I couldn't do it and it was a really really horrible sort of time because you know we life is actually quite tricky that's why Peter Pan had it so amazing is because he didn't want to experience what life actually has to offer. He wanted to stay young and inexperienced. And Blake talks about innocence being destroyed by experience. You know, when you're 17, 18, you don't really know anything. And so I just thought, well, of course I'm going to be this rugby player. Of course I'm going to be England and all these different things. But I was never going to do that. And looking back at it now, thank God I caught that ball and thank God I did my knee because otherwise I would be a B team in Portsmouth having had 40 injuries and a broken shoulder and four foot one. <laughs> it would have been a disaster, I think. That's interesting because some people have said to me about this podcast that sometimes they wonder why I 
have such an upbeat view of failure. And my response to that is always, I think failures can be lessons and nudges from the universe in a different direction, but that it's also okay to feel sad still about one's failures and to sit with that whilst also being contented in another way about life. So I wonder, is there still an element of sadness? As much as you're grateful for that nudge in a different direction, is there still an element of sadness over that? Yeah, I think there is. I definitely dream about it. I dream about playing rugby still now, bizarrely. Um, so interesting. Yeah, yeah I do, weirdly all the time. And I, can, and I always about to score a try and I can never quite score it. And it happens a lot. Am I sad about it? No, because I feel that I've been, I suppose I've been blessed in so many, you know, if my name was in a bucket of other names, I would take my name back for sure. And I really understand that and, and appreciate that. So no, I'm not sad about it. But I look back at it really fondly and go, well, that was great. But also what it made me realise is that to get something you never had, you have to do something you never did. You cannot be ordinary in life. Someone said to me the other day that the one thing you shouldn't be doing in life is follow logic because logic gets you back in the same place as everybody else. If you park a car, if you fly a plane, if you're driving a boat, follow logic because it gets you back <laughs> a in. Bit, yeah. yeah, follow logic 100% because <laughs> it gets you back in the same place as everybody else. But if you are living life or building a brand or doing business or in a relationship, all these things, don't follow logic because it gets you back in the same place as everybody else. Be different. And the fact that I hurt my knee and I couldn't play rugby anymore, I couldn't follow on my blueprint that I thought my life was to follow, it was able to me to go, well, I can now just go and do anything I want. Yeah. And that's what was the real blessing because I didn't go, right. And I think what happens is, is sometimes with people is that they go, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer. So I'm going to go to university and I'm going to study law and then I'm going to become a lawyer and here we're going to do this. And they follow this pathway in life and they suddenly get to a certain age and they go, oh, I've just followed what my blueprint is and perhaps that's not right. And it doesn't feel like I thought it would because you can't understand how something is until you get there. And you, yeah, I totally agree with you that there's this notion, I used to be someone with a five-year plan. And yeah, I used to exactly. be building Everyone my, is. yeah, and I used to be building my life around this hypothetical notion of what I would be like in five years. But then yeah. you get to that point in five years' time and you're not that person that you yeah. imagined. And it's, it's a, much better to be fluid and to respond to opportunities as they arise. It, it's exactly that. But for some reason we have these blueprints and we go like, well, this is what we need to follow. But in fact, your blueprint changes. You know, you spoke about how you got divorced. You would never thought when you were that you were going to get divorced no. and things like that. But you then suddenly realize that actually your life can change and you know you talked about being in New York suddenly you're in New York or suddenly you're here or suddenly you're writing books or doing this podcast or doing these different things and you never realize that was ever going to happen and life and everyone who's listening who's in like a place where it's like you're in a rut or you're in a horrible situation or you don't really feel like your life is going to get better. It really does change. It can turn on a six-month. You can be doing something completely different. And that's the biggest struggle that I find with people with suicide and things like that, and we spoke at the beginning, is because it's an instant relief to a solvable situation. And people feel that they're in this rut in life and they can never change. But in your life does change. It doesn't follow the blueprint that you perhaps wanted to or perhaps it is following. It can change in a heartbeat. And you can always find that blue sky if you really want to go and look for it. Have you experienced suicide in your life? I've had people that I know's parents who have committed suicide. One of my ex-girlfriend's dad committed suicide when I'd just broken up with her. And that was 
pretty miserable and pretty horrible. Because of my anxiety and because of the things that I've felt like that, I understand how people can get to a certain place where they feel like there's no hope. And that's really upsetting because it's just about going out there and actually getting help and doing those kind of things. So I really understand it. Having had this divorce and this fear of abandonment, I then went and had a lot of therapy. I decided to go and do therapy, so I did two and a half years. And so I became incredibly self-aware and understanding who I was and other people. And so I really understand the struggles that people can go through in life, I think. Let's talk about your third failure, which oh. this sounds mean because I'm about to say I'm really glad <laughs> that you're discussing that I did it. This. Yes. <laughs> Because I'm going to quote you here. This is the email that you sent me. And your third failing is 30 years old and haven't been able to cement a strong romantic relationship. Jamie Lang. Because it's one of the things that as someone who watches Made in Chelsea, I always really want for you. And I'm always rooting for you. And I don't understand myself why it goes. I mean, Heloise seemed so great. Yeah, she was. She was amazing. I feel like I'm just moping on this podcast. No, you're not at all. You're basically saying, as long as you're breathing, there's still hope in life. Yeah, completely. Which is a beautiful sentiment and absolutely the opposite of moping. Yeah. And I'm really interested because you are so self-aware and because you did experience your parents' divorce at eight years old, how that had a knock-on effect for your romantic relationships. It's totally my fault. I mean, completely, right? That, That our relationships haven't worked because I've been in relationships where... They perhaps they haven't worked because we haven't been compatible. But I've been in relationships where my partner has loved me so much and have been incredible. All of the girls that I have dated, bar maybe a couple, they would probably think I'm awful, but maybe a couple that we didn't work. They have been amazing people, incredible women. I grew up in the household of three sisters and a really strong mum. And so I find female company actually more enjoyable than male company. I just really love girls and hugely protective over women in that way. And so I admire girls and things like that and, and I and I like can I ask you to call them women yes that's of just course. a personal preference of course <laughs> I admire women um the reason why I haven't been able to hold down a relationship is because I think I'm a little bit selfish I'm so driven in life that I go right I need to achieve this and do this and do those kind of things because I have this problem with wanting everyone to love me so when you're in a relationship you know, it's about you guys as a bond. Here we go. But I then worry that if I go into a relationship with a girl, I then don't see my friends as much. And if I don't see my friends as much, then they may not like me as much. And so therefore I become worried. And so therefore I then start to see my friends more, which means I neglect my relationships. And I just haven't been able yet to find someone who probably accepts me for being me. And I have a lot of faults and a lot of flaws and things like that. What's your worst fault in a relationship? God, I, I wish I knew. Um, <laughs> my biggest fault in my relationship is that I want to always do what I want to do. And, and you can't be selfish in a relationship. And I think that's the reason why it hasn't worked is because I just have been too selfish. And so what happens is, is that my partners and the women in my life get upset with me and then because they get upset with me I go well this isn't working and I and I sort of end it right and I've loved a lot of people and and I end up messing it up for some reason it's not cheating or things that I mess it up because I push them away and then they get fed up and go but you have cheated in the past yeah I have cheated is that in your past (laughs) totally in my past so I joined a tv show when I was 21 years old I was single or 22 years old and we gained some sort of fame or whatever that was and I 
met an amazing girl while doing this TV show. And what happened was is that she didn't do the TV show. She did one scene and hated it, never wanted to do it. But also I was having people, you know, going to clubs and different things and having girls throw themselves at me. I thought, well, this is amazing. I was like, oh my God, all these people fancy me and it's great. They didn't fancy me at all. I mean, I was, you know, some didn't fancy at all, but it became almost a situation where I then ended up cheating because I wasn't thinking about the other person's emotions. And what happened was that is that you're then left with immense guilt. And I remember this one time, and I won't say who it is, but the person, she'll know who it is. But I remember she found out I cheated and we broke up. And I was about 24 at the time. And I was so, and I tried to get her back, tried to get her back, tried to get her back, tried to get her back. And she wouldn't get me. And I phoned her the entire time. And this is actually really upsetting. I remember one, I woke up one morning and there was a missed call from her on my phone. It was the first time we hadn't spoken in four months. And I tried to phone her back and not a word. And so for two months, I slept with iPod headphones in my ears, a tinette to the phone, so if it rang, I would hear it, uh, hoping that she would call. But from that moment on, and having ha- had that break, and dealing with that guilt, and seeing someone that I really love so upset because of me, I then was like, well, I can never do that ever again. And it's so funny, because coming from a family of divorce and, and cheating and things like that, why would I then go and copy that? It was bizarre. And I then had to look at myself and go, what have I done? And it was just all about being validated. I thought, God, if I go and sleep with people, it's going to make me really cool. And people are going to really like me and think I'm really awesome. But in fact, you just look like a dick. I think you're totally right, though. I think it all stems from the same thing. It's that fear of abandonment. It is exactly that. So you're like shoring up all of these people. Yeah. And you're a romantic at heart, I'm guessing. Completely. I love love. Love is amazing, right? Have you ever cheated or been cheated on? Is that too deep a question? Jamie, that is such a deep question. And I'm glad that you asked it. I have cheated and I've been cheated on. Mm. And What's worse? Well, being cheated on, you have the moral high ground, which gives you fuel to get through the anger and the grief and the distress and the anti-validation you get from that because you're suddenly like, oh, I failed to be the person that this person wants to be. And I thought we were in a relationship But I completely agree with you. When I say I cheated, I I kissed someone else when I was in a relationship with someone. And I felt so guilty. I was like, I can never, ever do this again. It's horrible, yeah. It's absolutely hideous. And this was like, these were relationships in my 20s, like yours. And on one level, it's not that serious. On another level, it completely messed up my own sense of self because I consider myself a very loyal person mm-hmm. and someone you can trust. And I was like, I just can't. How did that happen? And that's why I can completely relate to you because I know why it happened because there was another person paying me attention and saying things to me that made me feel seen and validated and loved. And I wasn't getting that from the relationship I was in. Oh, God. And breathe. I, mean, I have never admitted that. Have out you loud. not? Have you not? No, but it feels better when you. <laughs> it really does. Thank yeah. you. But Elizabeth, I think with you, the difference with you is that you, perhaps wrongly or rightly, you 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 find a reason for it, and you know your reason is because you felt that you weren't getting attention from the right place, and so you went out there to find that, and someone gave you the attention, and you went and did it. Mine was just purely just validation, which is not a really purely just because I thought it would make me fun and cool and all these different things. But in fact, it really didn't. And so I was just left with guilt. And I still think if I look back and think about the time of my ex-girlfriend and her finding out I cheated on her and her whole world crushing, 
God, it makes my heart just turn because I can never change that. You, you can never change it. And that's a kind of upsetting thing, I suppose. Actually, and you're totally right. Sorry, Jamie, because you're totally right. What I did there when I admitted that to you was I said... You're finding a reason for yeah, why you I did it. Yeah, I found a reason that was external to me, like... I wasn't getting the love that I wanted. But actually, you're completely right that it was internally motivated and I needed to look at something I really disliked about myself mm. and handle that. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. No, <laughs> you're, like, nice. you're being an amazing therapist no, to me right now. You're being an amazing therapist. I love the sitting and talking. God, I'm so sorry to the listener that you just have to hear me ramble for so long about my poor life. No, it's amazing. <laughs> maybe you're still in love with Lucy Watson. I'm oh, kidding. Maybe, maybe I'm kidding. <laughs> with Eloise, yeah. We broke up. I haven't told that to anyone yet. So you're the first to know that. Oh, God, Jamie, yeah. I'm so sad about that because it felt like such a... She was amazing. Natural she is amazing. Yeah, it's it's me because I... She really did seem to accept you for who you were. I'm basing all this on, Hobbit, on what she made in Chelsea. She she but... is. So, so to, to listen, if no one's watched Made in Chelsea, Eloise was a girl that I met. She's a French-American girl from a beautiful family, very beautiful herself, inside and out, and all these things. 19, but seemed older in terms of like her wisdom and maturity levels. But her her sense of fun matched yours. Her sense of fun matched mine, all those different things, and she was great. However, she was, yeah, she was 19 years old, I was 29, and we're 10 years apart, so I'm 30, she was 20. And the problem with that relationship was, as much as she was way more mature than me in so many ways, she hadn't experienced life. Mm -hmm. And so when you're, again, 89, 20, all these things, you're experiencing anything for the first time. You're experiencing someone being mean to you, or you're experiencing someone not being rejected from a job, or all the... I'm 30. I've experienced all those things a million times. You're like, sorry, why are you upset with this? So I couldn't quite connect on that level. But that was one flaw. That was one thing. And I remember saying to my friend Georgie LaRue, who actually connected, who is... Lovely Georgie. Lovely Georgie, who will be listening to this podcast. and, And she is just... She's been my absolute best friend for so many years. She's unbelievable. I said to her, I can wait for these cracks in our relationship to be cemented and her to experience life and all these different things. Or I can end it now. And I chose to end it, but I probably regret that. But there's no going back now. So I sort of don't think things through a lot of the time romantically. But I think you're following your instinct, which is a good thing. And although you say there's no way back, there's definitely no way back to the relationship that you had. Yeah. But that's a good thing. As well as a sad thing, it's a good thing. Because you could always go back out and have a completely different and completely new relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With this, yeah. But I'm so jealous of people who... I, I look at my brother, for example, who's in just the happiest relationship and he loves his wife and they just had a new baby. And I'm like, God, that's so sweet. That's what I want. But why can't I, as a part of me, I always think that perhaps there might be something more, or there might be something this, or there might, the grass might be greener. It never is. It never is mm. at all. But there's always a part of me which thinks that way. And somehow I need to just allow myself to not do that. Because the ultimate thing into life is to have that family and those kind of things, in my opinion. And, and all those kind of things. And forget everything else. But to have that is what I really want. My mum always says, the person who gives you your children and you be with your love to the end. And so I just have to wait until that happens. I think it's an interesting phase of your life 
that you're in. I'm talking like I'm 85. <laughs> we're I the same age. 30, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're not. I'm 10 years older than you. But I remember turning 30 and I remember in my 20s thinking that I knew what being in love was. And in one respect, I did. But in another respect, I think I was addicted to the adrenalized moments. I was like addicted to that dance that you have at the beginning where you're not quite sure and someone's chasing you or you're chasing them and you don't know if they're going to text. And and actually it was exhausting and I wasn't addicted to it in a good way. Mm. And I was mistaking that for love. And actually love, I realise now, is about contentment yeah. but in the most beautiful way yeah, yeah, yeah. in the way that it's like you find your rock and you're with them and it's not about crashing tidal waves of exactly. will they won't they it's this much more beautiful solid thing yeah and so i think maybe love might come for you in an unexpected package well can you find that <laughs> yeah i'm so delighted so, i love matchmaking but where you- are you looking for your women well, I, I, to be honest, I, this is the thing. So I've always looked for love in friendship or in women or things like that. I've always, so I've always gone, I got my friends, so I, I need to be around my friends or in a relationship. I need to be in a relationship. So I find these women and go into a relationship with them. But in fact, you know, you have to be incredibly happy with yourself and content with yourself before you can be content with someone else. But I, I, do you believe in love at first sight? You do? I do. I I believe in connection at first sight. Yes, I believe in that. Yeah. But do you, do you believe that you can meet someone, fall in love with them, and then just be a Disney story ending? I don't think it's as easy as that. <laughs> yeah. But I do think you can meet someone, walk into a bar as I did, have an immediate connection, and it be so unexpected. Like I wasn't expecting that connection. This Almost is- electric. Basically, I got divorced, then I had another long-term relationship for two years, and that ended, he ended it, it was really brutal, and oh. I was devastated after oh that. Oh my God, it's, it's just... Horrible. It's horrible. I remember, it's horrible. <laughs> I've had it done... Breakups to the work. When I was 16 years old, the girl who I'm still really friendly with broke my heart as well, and it is just... There's a mo- Have you ever watched the movie Closer? Have you ever seen Closer yes. with Natalie Portman I and Jude Law? It's an amazing movie. Yeah. There's a point right at the end where Natalie Portman turns to Jude Law and says, I don't love you anymore. And you're like, oh my God, <laughs> what? It's the, it's the worst. Were you expecting it or not expecting it? Oh, I was not expecting it. It was so oh brutally out of the blue. You can read about it in my book because I don't... I, it was so brutally out of the blue and it was three weeks before my 39th birthday. And I, like you, had always wanted children. Yeah, yeah. And I was then left. It was just shock. I was in shock and then I was in denial and then I was in grief and then I was angry and then I was calm again. But... It sent me into a, quite a dark place. Yeah, yeah. And I started online dating. And Did I, you? Yeah, and I had a series of really disappointing dates. Well, but as in Tinder? Or what I never the... did Tinder, but I did Bumble. Did you? And I, yes. I love that. <laughs> and I did Hinge, which is now my favourite app in the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. Because I had a series of disappointing dates and they were difficult and dispiriting. And online dating's really tough. But it taught me so much about myself and about what I wanted. And it taught me to know myself better. And I realised now that it was a process. And then on March 29th last year, I walked into a bar, such low expectations because it was another online date. And it was this man who I had an immediate connection with and who is now my boyfriend. That's amazing. And it is amazing. But it didn't come in the package that I expected. So it didn't come in that way, that like romantic story way of, oh, we were just at this party and our eyes locked across the room or... I tripped over his foot and it was so charming. And I, it wasn't 
that. It was literally the two of us had gone out to find the person we wanted to be with. And we found each other, and that's great. And that's romantic in its own way. That is romantic. I got a friend called Joel Dommett, who's a comedian, a really lovely guy. And Might he, have heard of him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he, <laughs> and he met his wife through Instagram. And the problem was that he had, I'm sure he'll be fine me saying this, is that he always had the issue is that that can't be the story. I wanted to have walked on the bus and knocked into her or, or what we see in movies but in fact no he they went out looking for each other and it's not a romantic story. he said I'm happy with that I'm yeah. content with that because that's our story and that's all that matters exactly and, and, and it does and we're all so focused on success and these things and God and everything we've got to be the most in love and we've got to find the you know this Disney kind of story but in fact everyone's individual story is perfect in their own way, without a doubt. And the fact that you found your boyfriend on a date, that's amazing for you because it's a story and that's what happened to you in life. Who cares if it was on, you didn't trip over him, as you said, and things like that. That doesn't matter one bit, I don't think. The fact that you found someone that you connect with and you're in love with, that's the most amazing thing about it. But I want to ask you, do you know what's so weird about this podcast, right? Is that I do my podcast private and things like that and I love people. I always chat to people so I ask them questions yeah being asked questions is actually a weird it's a weird transference it's a weird I I find it odd (laughs) because I'm thinking because what you do like you'll be doing is that when I'll be talking to you you'll be listening to exactly what I'm saying and you're so engaging but you'll also be thinking okay how can I it's you're thinking almost like chess you're thinking ahead yeah with me I'm talking about me but also thinking ahead (laughs) it's like a bizarre (laughs) the way my mind works I've literally never been asked so many questions on this podcast other than the episode where I was interviewed in the first season and I'm aware that we're massively overrunning but it's I just want to ask you yeah, I'm sorry, I just want to ask you one, I just want to ask you one thing. You said that you wanted children. I, I think a lot of women, they have this fear that they get suddenly their clock and all these different things. Do you think the fact that you haven't had kids, is that a problem for you or not a problem to you? Yeah. Or do you want to have kids later? Or what, how do you feel? Because I made that really awkward. No, you didn't. it's an awkward thing to talk about and it shouldn't be. So it I'm shouldn't really be. glad yeah. that you asked me. And I feel like what really upsets me is that women get to a certain age and go, oh, I have to do this. Have to... No. And I understand biological, you know, sometimes it's not as easy to have kids, but you don't have to race to the finish to do it. Well, we're lucky that we live in times when there are so many different ways Mm. to be a parent. But my personal situation was that I always thought I'd have children and I tried and I failed. And so I consider it to be one of my big failures really? in that it didn't happen for me naturally I had two cycles of IVF that were unsuccessful and then I got pregnant naturally and I had a miscarriage at three months and that all happened in one year when I was 35 and the following year my marriage broke down and it was intimately related to that and then for me it's been a really long process coming to terms with the fact that I think now it's highly unlikely that I'll be a biological mother and I'm very sad about that but I'm also at peace with it and I realise that not having children has also led me up these interesting and unexpected paths and I've loved that and I'm also very liberated by the fact that I don't have responsibilities in that way Mm. so I can just go to LA for a month if I want and I can launch podcasts like on a whim (laughs) Mm. and see what happens. And I'm very grateful for that. And I'm very grateful for the children that are in my life. So I've got nieces and godchildren and my boyfriend has three amazing children. And so I feel very lucky in that respect. But it's a really interesting one because I can talk fluently about it, but there's also how I feel. And how I feel is 
still very emotional. I can see, yeah. I can see you're getting emotional, but yeah. that, but it is, it's, it's really hard. And, and again, it's because what happens is, is that we again go back to that blueprint where we go, well, this is what I wanted to have and I want to do these things. And it's very upsetting when things don't go as you want them to, but you have an amazing way of looking and you've done it in every single thing that I've seen you, you talk about, I've read about you and how you're with you now, is that you always look at the positive side of things. And it's very easy to go to the negative and be disappointed and be upset about things. But you go, no, but it's a blessing that I have this and this and this. My business partner, a guy called Ed Williams, another rock in my life, he went to a talk about with this girl who was on the first day of her new job. And she was late and managed to just get on the tube. And the last thing she remembers is sitting on the tube. And it was when the bombs went off. And she woke up and she she had lost both her legs and she was in a coma and all these kind of things. And she gave this talk and she said that I could sit here and I could complain and I could be upset about it. But if that hadn't happened to me, I wouldn't be sitting here and talking to all of you people in this room about my story and about life and how you look at the blessings. And it's sometimes really hard, but it's just a mental shift in your mind that you have to go, right, let's think positively about this. And I went through such a stage in life of going to the negative. Oh my God, I'm not going to get that job. Or, oh my God, that person doesn't like me. Or, oh my God, I feel this way. But in fact, I went, well, what happens if I think I will get that job or I will do this? And that's what you do so beautifully is that you go, Yes, perhaps this hasn't happened for me. However, I have so many amazing things going on in my life. Children, work, flying to LA, being able to do podcasts, that it's such a great way to think. And you should spread that as much as mm. you possibly can. Oh, Jamie. <laughs> God, this has been amazing. I've loved this so you, much. Have I just rambled on about nonsense? No. I was thinking about <laughs> Am I making sense? You're making total sense. Are you sure? How has it been for you? How do you feel? This podcast? Yeah. Oh, it's... Honestly, you got the nomination. Congrats. Yes, so did you. Yeah, we both nominated... British Podcast Award nominations. Yeah. You fully deserve it. Ditto. Um, it's been amazing. I told you, I was so excited to come to this podcast. My friend Georgie was over the moon that I was doing it. It's a weird one because I'm, like, I'm used to leading a conversation and talking to someone about their thing. So for me to talk about myself, I find it quite odd and complicated because I perhaps don't know myself sometimes as well as I think I know myself. So when I start to talk about why is the relationship broken down, I go, well, actually, I don't perhaps know why, but I know it's about me. But it's been very enlightening and opening. And I think you're great. I think you're great. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on How to Fail, Jamie Lang. You've been an utter delight. Thank you so much. Thank you. 